Oh, hey, it just turned to 9 o'clock, so there you go. <clears throat> just so you're aware, um, I got a call this morning at about 6.20, well, a text, actually. All the paperwork for today's lesson was accidentally thrown out, so I had to reprint it, <laughs> which, was, lucky enough, I, I woke up before my alarm. <clears throat> Pastor was already up. Anyway, there's two brand new maps. If you didn't get a map, they're both they're both brand new and they're exclusively for beginning with Nahum and then the the next couple. So my my voice is a little gravelly this morning, um, but I'll, I'll work through it. It's no big deal. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this uh, great day. Um, we know that we have some uh, smoke in the air and it, it might be difficult for some folks and I just pray that, um, that it would be something that, that wouldn't inhibit um, anyone from coming to fellowship this morning. So we just pray for everybody and for health. Pray for myself and for my voice and for the time that um, will be spent here uh, plunging into your word and um, we seek to do this Father as, a, as a, uh, the body of Christ in attendance this morning so that we can bring glory to you in Jesus name so we'll get out of this first panel real quick and uh, go to the, the uh, uh, title panel so we're going to be dealing with Nahum <clears throat> His name means consolation. <clears throat> and I find this, I actually find this book rather interesting because it's a follow-up to Jonah. Jonah went to, to Nineveh to uh, reluctantly and, you know, preach the word of the Lord, and the whole city repented. This is 130 years later, and Nineveh has failed to follow after God, and the consequences are what we we see in this book. <clears throat> so the timeline chart is the same. <clears throat> <clears throat> you can see uh, Nahum down there uh, toward toward the bottom, and you can also see, if you look on the right hand side, the um, uh, the Northern Kingdom in 722 B.C. has ended, and they have gone into captivity into Assyria. And so uh, we'll find a little bit more about uh, Nahum, but uh, he, he lived in Judah, which is the southern kingdom, when um, this oracle came to him. So if you uh, you have your your um, bulletin inserts, I always like to call them, and uh, there at the top of the page you have the um, the outline, and uh, and so this is a vision concerning Nineveh, and of course um, words uh, to both commend and and warn Judah are always a part of what the. Old Testament prophets are doing. In the introduction portion, uh, we see God's power and his patience. We also see God's wrath toward his enemies and his resolve to destroy Nineveh. They've crossed the line. Um, then comes the prediction of Nineveh's doom, also in uh, chapter 1. Then the conquest of Nineveh, uh, words to the effect that their defense would be in vain and that terror would accompany the conquest. It, it's, it's hard to visualize the conditions that people in this time in, in these places live under where the armies and the way the armies function. Um, of course, nothing is new under the sun uh, we we have seen great um, abuses of of whole peoples 
just in the last century when you consider what Stalin and, and Lenin did to the people in Russia and, and what, um, what happened in China uh, from 1946 on when, um, you know, Mao, you um, know, his little red, red book went across the, the China, which is a huge, huge nation, from village to village, killing uh, leaders and and just um, murdering is is just a practice of of what they did in, in every day until they they conquered. And today we're still having the consequences of that conflict. You have Taiwan. You have the people um, under uh, Chiang Kai-shek um, that went to Taiwan to escape what was going on. Uh, because of the um, the purging that was taking place in China, and the millions and millions of people that were killed in my in my own era, I think of what happened in Cambodia um, before I wound up in Vietnam and the, the killing fields in Cambodia and, and the massive graves that, that we have images of now of. of uh, the bones of people that were killed by Pol Pot and et cetera. So you, you take some of that historical knowledge that we have in our own era and you trans, transport yourself back to what was going on in these times. And this is how the armies operated. There, there was no mercy when, when they operated and um, when they went to do their thing, it, it meant loss of life, immeasurable loss of life. So anyway, uh, then lastly comes the fall of Nineveh. It's described poetically in this book. Um, and uh, the destruction to be equal to the treatment of other nations. So, you know, God looks upon what Nineveh did, and it was no different than what he what he saw when he looked upon other nations that, that violated the tenets of God. So lastly, at the end of the book, we can see that everyone flees that still remains alive. They're all scattered. Nineveh itself is raised. On the back of your bulletin, there's a picture of a lion. This is a, a mosaic. And uh, uh, the lion of Assyria is uh, plays a role in this book, and we'll see that as we go through. So up there on your screen, there's an image of the destruction of Nineveh. That black dot at the upper right of the screen looks like a UFO. It's not. <laughs> I had to cut off the size of the, the image. That's actually a statue of some kind, and uh, it's a, a warrior, and uh, that's his left arm holding a um, shield of some of some type. But anyway, you can see the people, and you know, fleeing, trying to flee the city, going to the the Tigris River, which plays a prominent role in the destruction of Nineveh, and we'll see that too. And so this image just goes to um, uh, what, what I was talking about. We, we are so insulated, you know, there's only a small percentage of the people um, of this country that, that have gone to places, um, you know, more, more recently over in the, the Middle East and, and the conflict against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and, and, and that sort of thing in recent history. In my generation, it was... Um, the Dominican Republic. I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember that conflict. It, it was actually going on before uh, Vietnam escalated. And I spent a year in the Dominican Republic. I, I was a, a member of the primary military police force that was there in uh, the city of Santo Domingo. Um, their whole police force was disbanded because it was corrupt and, and they killed a lot of people. And there was a revolution going on 
And so the United States of America and Paraguayan military policemen and other South American, it was the um, Organization of American States action. And um, we actually patrolled the city. I, I actually traveled across the country a couple of times uh, to do uh, convoys. And I saw the consequences of war. I saw, I saw what poverty was really like. I saw what um, hunger was really like. I saw what, what, the di what disease that comes from that sort of thing was, was really like. And, um, and, and when that and I also felt the heat of bullets passing very closely to my head. <laughs> and uh, I got back to the United States and I was told, well, you've had your tour of duty in a combat zone, so you're not gonna ever go overseas again. Well, you, you guys have seen me wear my Vietnam veterans hat. So the army lies a lot, you know. <laughs> Three months later, I was shipped to a unit that wound up over in, in, in Vietnam. A little bit of God's humor, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I joined the army because I got a draft notice and I didn't want to become an infantryman. So I joined as a military police officer. And then I wound up in the Dominican Republic in a frontline action. And then when I got sent to Vietnam, I was assigned uh, to, into a small military police uh, platoon uh, attached to one of the biggest, most active infantry brigades. And wherever the infantry went, the military police went. So, you know, so much for me trying to figure out how to avoid stuff. God had other, other plans. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. This is a little bit of a shorter book. I can do a little bit more at living here. Anyway, that's the outline. It's pretty concise. We have two key verses, verse 2 of chapter 1. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. <coughs> well, that sounds pretty ominous, and, and it should, because it, we'll see that it goes to God's righteous judgment and uh, uh, you know and when when people and nations uh, go counter to uh, his commands and they disobey and they mistreat God's people then they come under God's righteous judgment uh, verse 7 of chapter 1 the Lord is good this sounds very different the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him. That is such a reassuring verse. I love it. The scripture at the bottom says, in whirlwind, and this is from Nahum verse 3 of chapter 1, in whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. In other words, God's sovereignty is, extends as broad as you can paint broadness in your in your mind. And he oversees everything. So I want to take a little bit of time to um, break these verses down. Um, you, you can see the verse again, and I've got some of the words underlined. And uh, the difference in the in the information below is it's not in the same order as what's printed in the Bible. What's down below is the actual order in the Hebrew text. And so the name of God is, is first, uh, and it's an, an absolute reference, the mighty one, the one true Lord. So God, a jealous and avenging God. So take that word God and bring it over to the front. And jealous is, has to do with God's passion for his people's safety against his enemies and avenging uh, is a participle which points to God and it, and it declares that he is the one who repays the abuse that's heaped upon his people. And then, of course, the word Lord is used, and we've talked about that uh, before. Um, in the context here, it's talking about his revelation as being eternal. We, we always 
it's good to remind us that Yahweh is referring to the I am, the one who was, who is, who is to come. And the context here is the avenging one, and we can connect that to Psalm 94.1, which says, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. So the psalmist declares, don't withhold your vengeance, because the psalmist knows very well that, it, it, that uh, he's also been taught that God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. So we're not to put ourselves on the pedestal of vengeance. We learn that from Jesus' teaching, too. So, talks about avenging and wrathful. The wrathfulness, it talks about the sovereign power of the Lord. And, um, uh, and then it says, and the Lord takes this vengeance against his adversaries. Um, and, and that wrath is reserved for those enemies as well. And the word enemies is a notable possessive structure uh, declaring the enemies of him, and that would be those who oppose his people in his statutes. The second one, uh, verse 7, the Lord is good. Uh, again, the, the word good comes first in the Hebrew text. It's absolute, uh, as that is well-pleasing, morally correct, gracious, kind, and having an abundance to give. We, we learn that in New Testament teachings as well. Again, the same reference to Yahweh, that he is a stronghold, uh, he is a refuge, he is a fortress, a shelter, a place of safety and protection, uh, a go-to God for relief from war and judgment. And uh, in the context of the Christian faith, a go-to God who says to us, come, follow me. And then we, we submit, and he makes us whole. And then it talks about the trouble, and that's, that's the judgment to come and the anguish that's connected with it. Um, it says that he knows, and it's talking about him alone. God alone is the one who has complete knowledge of those who come to him and trust in him alone and the those who take refuge again it's it's in him as a shield providing safety as as a, the shade of a tree um I, i'm always going to insert this panel you've seen it before it's it's what that verse was talking about he knows those who take refuge in him and it goes to the doctrine of repentance and and what that requires We've seen it in several of the uh, minor prophets that God had, does not desire um, physical sacrifices. The, the sacrifices that people brought to the temple were, were activities and actions that followed the, the commands that were given through Moses and the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and whatnot. And, and th those were actions of a temporary nature. But we know in, in uh, you know, I think it's Hebrews that the scriptures declare that, uh, that Jesus sacrificed once and for all. And so that ended, that ended the, the, the need for physical sacrifice. But God also declares that, that refuge in him doesn't require those kinds of, of physical obedient sacrifices. It requires a yielding of your own soul, a recognition of your own spirit that you are born into this world with the wickedness of sin implanted in you. Bible teaches that that's transmitted through Adam, that we are all in his loins at the very beginning and that everyone who is born uh, it, it receives this transmission of sin, which explains why we can say declaratively that Jesus was sinless because he did not have a human father. There was no human male seed that, that conceived with a, uh, an egg in, within Mary um, to produce a sinful being. It was, she was, uh, she um, was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and then she conceived and bore a child. 
And so we know that, 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 you know, when he went to the temple, he said, I'm, I'm about my father's business. He understood who his father was. He loved, he loved his, his human father. There's no question about it. We know that he did the work of a carpenter and he was a good son. And, um, and uh, only that, uh, that time in, in, at 12 years old when he got lost and they had to go find him, but then after that, from the age of 12 to the age of 30, he was just a homebody. He was a homebody. And, and, and so we know that, that he loved his family. We know that he had a good relationship with his, his brothers. Um, we learned about some of them later on in, in uh, the history of the New Testament. Anyway, God desires that broken heart, that, that passive submission to God who breaks your heart so that he can mend it, nail it to the cross, and, and, and transfer Je- the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ into each and, and every heart. So this is the essence of the gospel. This, this sinless man who had no guilt of his own willingly went to the cross and died and rose again from the dead so that we can have life in him. Um, one of my favorite stories is the story of Jesus and Nicodemus where he chided Nicodemus because he didn't know. Nicodemus, you should know. You're a, you're a rabbi. You, you're a teacher of the people that you must be born again. And then that incredible exchange between them. It's a concept that it's the gospel. And so it can't be left out. So on your bulletins there, um, you have the theme, Nineveh will be destroyed and the holiness of God will be revealed. Uh, The purpose, a once repentant nation, speaking of Nineveh, has fallen into disobedience. God is not mocked. The sovereignty of the one true God is revealed. Um, The method, visions of judgment predict with pinpoint accuracy God's holy vengeance Nahum is written using lyric poetry and then the summary. Nahum is a straightforward pronouncement against cruelty, atrocities, and idolatry. And then there is one uh, blank uh, note there. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So the author, the significance of the, and this is from MacArthur, by the way, the significance of the writing prophets was not their personal lives, it was their message. So they didn't spend a lot of time talking about themselves. And so it's one of the reasons why we, we don't have as much information about them as um, it, it might be more helpful. Uh, the little we do know is that he was called an Elkoshite. Uh, so that means that he was probably born in Galilee, the northern kingdom. And then he moved to Judea where he ministered the Lord's word proclaiming these prophecies. The date is a little difficult to uh, ascertain because there are no kings mentioned in this book. Um, But there is historical evidence uh, in the book that points to a time prior to the fall of Assyria. Uh, The mention of Thebes, and I'll talk about Thebes a little bit later. Uh, It's also called No Amon. Uh, In chapter 3, it helps to set the ministry span from 695 to 640 B.C. Another note there, come listen to me, I will teach you to fear the Lord. And we know that fear is the beginning of wisdom. So here's the first map, and what's different about this one is that you can see um, on the map in in the upper right-hand portion, you can see the uh, Assyrian provinces, and and that's where the northern kingdom was. The northern kingdom has been destroyed and taken into captivity. And since this is about Nineveh, I, I spliced in the second map. You can see Nineveh over there on the right of the screen. It's, it's up there in the Assyrian Empire. Um, and uh, get that to slide out of the way there. So the background, if you recall, 120 years Prior to Nahum, Jonah went to Nineveh, and the people of Nineveh repented and obeyed God. 
In Nahum's time, Nineveh had returned to idolatry, violence, and arrogance. Their power extended to Egypt and locations east. They failed to train their children in faith in God. That was the key. They, they repented back then in, in Jonah's time, but, but they didn't teach their children to follow the statutes of the Lord. And so consequently, 120 years later, they were just as bad, if maybe not worse, than they had been in Jonah's time. Uh, the kings of Judah were Ammon, Josiah, and Jehoahaz. Uh, the northern kingdom was in activity, as a captivity, as I said. Other active prophets were Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah comes into the picture as well. The fall of Nineveh took place in 612 B.C., which was a relief to all once Nineveh failed. failed. And uh, I showed you that image, and um, you saw the river, the Tigris River. So the flooding of the Tigris River destroyed the defensive walls of Nineveh, as predicted in chapter 1, verse 8 of, of Nahum. And the siege ended, and Babylon defeated Assyria, and so it became the Babylonian Empire. Not a lot of change there. In chapter 3, verse 11, Nahum predicted that the city would be hidden, and rediscovery of the ruins didn't come until 1842. And you can see the note there. Uh, this image is identified as the palace of Sennacherib um, of Nineveh, who was the, the ruler at the time and so it's still hidden today yeah they've got a few steps but the city the city is destroyed it's gone a lot of the things a lot of the uh, architectural ruins and discoveries that they make these days more and more all the time are, are, are just great confirmations I can recall 50 years ago that, uh, you know, people saying that, well, there's just no proof that this place existed or that this person existed. And and over the last 50 years, every time they find something, <clears throat> the footnote has always been, oh, well, now we can see that that place actually did exist or that person actually was somebody that was real. And uh, so they lose, God wins. <laughs> So this is the, uh, the, the big map of uh, the Assyrian Empire. And uh, the World History Encyclopedia estimates that 610 B.C. was the, the time of the fall of Assyria. But you can see how extensive it was. And um, anything that's that big and that broad requires an awful lot of military force to control what's going on. Okay, let's take a look at the text. It starts off the oracle of Nineveh. An oracle is a divine utterance delivered to man. It's not anything magical. You know, he didn't tweak his nose and make a wish or whatever. He, it just came to him. And then that's linked <clears throat> to the next phrase where it says, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. And a vision, it, it just simply refers to uh, a, a visual encounter at some time. So um, uh, the oracle came to, to, to him and it was presented to him one-on-one. -on -one. He saw a vision and it probably included the vision of the one who was speaking to him. And then it starts right off our, our lead verse, the jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. Now, this is, this is interesting. We, we see the wrath coming, but it also declares that God is slow to anger, yet great in power, and will by no means leave the guilty unpunishment, unpunished. It'll take some time, but when it comes, it will come. <clears throat> <clears throat> and you know the visual images that, that so many of the prophets bring up are, are so great for us to, to kind of glom onto because we can we you know it gives us a sense of who the Lord, the Lord is and how powerful he is um, we hear about tornadoes and hurricanes 
and we we see and hear about the destruction that takes place all the time, and uh, and it breaks our hearts. Yet those very things are descriptive of who the Lord is. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea, makes it dry, dries up all the rivers. Bastion and Carmel, that's referring to Mount Carmel, I've talked about that before. Wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake and hills dissolve. The earth is upheaved by his presence. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up. And then it jumps right into that other secondary primary verse. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows who, those who take refuge in him. So what just we just read before goes to the punishment of those who don't take refuge. This goes to those who do take refuge. And then it concludes here, but with a flood he will make an end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And so he destroys Nineveh with, with water, essentially, and, and the armies that invade as well. And then Psalm 91.5, the heavens declare the glory of God, the expanse his handiwork. <clears throat> Going on in chapter 1. Whatever you desire, and this is Nineveh, speaking about Nineveh, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will completely end it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns, good, good image, good image, that's a simile, and, and like those who are drunk, they are consumed as stubble. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. We've seen his name before. This is Sennacherib again. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in man, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, and this is talking to the people of God, I will no longer, I will break his yoke, referring to Nineveh again, bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your God, small g. I will prepare your grave for you, for you are contemptible. And then this, behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Well, that re should remind us of Romans ten fifteen. It says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, quoting this passage, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, I can testify, I've been preaching the good news for a long time, but my feet are not beautiful. <laughs> but they are shod with the gospel of peace, and that makes them beautiful. That's what makes them beautiful. I don't want to have a... Uh, a show and tell session here but you know we could get pastor up here and he could take his shoes and socks off and we could compare no that would that would be that would be not that would be bad <laughs> anyway celebrate your feast O judah pay your vows and never again for never again will the wicked one pass through you he is cut off completely so i mentioned simile the use of simile makes it easier to envision in author's ideas. That comes from a dictionary source. The one who scatters has come against you, the fortress. Oh, man the fortress. Watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon your strength. The Lord will, dis will uh, restore the splendor of, of Jacob like Israel, even though devastation devastators have plundered and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. Warriors are dressed in scarlet. Chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march, uh, and cypress spears are bent, brandished, chariots race madly, wildly in the squares. Like torches, they dash about like lightning. Can you imagine being in a, in a city that's under siege, and then the chariots with the, the people manning the chariots come in at night with their torches ablaze? 
and the racket that they create and you know steel but clashing against steel the 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 the, the clatter the racket of the horses uh, hooves on, on cobblestone walkways and whatnot and then you know the, the the shouts and the screams and the yells and the people running horrid horrid and so it it's confusing and it, and it causes people to lose hope they dash about like lightning he remembers his nobles they stumble in their march they they hurry to her wall and the mantelet is set up now i've defined i got the definition of mantelet and i found it rather interesting a mantelet is defined as a weapon proof screen now that fits into the context here of setting up some kind of a weapon-proof screen to, to try to prevent the enemy from getting the upper hand. Or a woman's cloak. <laughs> now, I, I don't want to go any further than that, but there it is. The, both definitions are real. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away, and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. And the reference to she here has to do with the harlotry of their disobedience. Though Nineveh was a pool of water through her days, they are fleeing. Stop, stop. But no one turns back. No one turns back to the Lord. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every desirable object. She is emptied. She is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Anguish is in the whole body and their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of lions? Remember I talked about uh, the lion being the image of the Assyrian Empire. Um, Where is the den of lions in the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness, and cub prowled with nothing to disturb them, the lion tore enough for his cubs, chilled enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and dens with torn flesh. How descriptive, wonderful imagery. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. I will burn up your chariots. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. That last bit is the most devastating. The, the, the messengers that are out there to declare the truth of God will be cut off. And when that happens, it's too late. Woe to the uh, bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip and the rattling wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, a mass of corpses and countless dead. What images? They stumble over the bodies, all because of the harlot. And this is their. This was the way they were living, and this this is talking about the the influence of the harlot, of the nation itself, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you, make you vile, and set you up as a spectacle, and it will come about that all who see you will shrink and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? And then we have the note there, consider immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed as idolatry. Those things are part of every human being's life. It's the harlotry of of the wickedness of the the soul that that needs the righteousness of Christ and uh, his death and resurrection, the necessity of that. Are you better than no Amon? Situated by the waters of the Nile with water. And this is going over into Egypt and, and south of, uh, of Cairo. 
whose rampart and wall were the sea. Ethiopia was her might, Egypt too, without limits. Pot and Lubim were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her. Honorable men and all her great men were bound with fetters. So no Ammon was the city of Thebes. It was the capital of southern Egypt, 400 miles south of Cairo. Harold is a great civilization and renowned for its 100 gates. And, and obviously the big walls surrounding it. It had a temple 330 feet by 170 to some false god. No Ammon fell to Assyria in 663 even though she was surrounded by strong allies. And the point of this is, um, down there at the bottom, Nineveh too, though having strong geographical fortifications and mighty armies of its own, would fall, just like Thebes. <coughs> you too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a, a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall to the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide. Your enemies, to your enemies, fire consumes your gate bars. So the city will be destroyed. Um, Jesus' words are, can be recalled here. O Jerusalem, who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to her. Draw water for the siege, strengthen fortifications. Now, this is sac uh, sarcasm. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. So all your preparations will be no good. You will be destroyed. Your mighty armies uh, cannot stand against the might and the power of the Lord's retribution. It will consume you as the locust. Multiply yourself like creeping locust, like swarming locust. You have increased your traitors. Uh, this is exaggeration more than the stars. Now, that's impossible, but that's why it's there. Creeping locusts uh, strip and fly away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the uh, place where they are not, they are, is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping. That is, the ones who should be telling you to return to God. O king of Assyria, your nobles are lying down, your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. That's, that's uh, an expression that, um, that means an end. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? So sarcasm and exaggeration or literary devices used to create emphasis or effect. I missed something here, and I can't, there, where was it? Uh, well, I, 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 I missed one of my cues, but I'll bring it up, I'll bring it up now, um, because I have a couple of minutes. Um, it was talking about the, the earth quaking and the, the mountains being burst and, and whatnot. Uh, so, so back in 1971, I was a young police officer and I had I'd been, like I said, in the Dominican Republic and Vietnam and I, had, I did have some close death experiences. Uh, the one noteworthy one was... Um, I was in a Jeep patrol at 3 o'clock in the morning on my unit's main base, and um, we had some incoming mortar rounds. And so my partner and I, we stopped where we were and tried to cower down a little bit, and we heard one incoming. And the mortar round, we heard it come, and we heard it land. It didn't explode. So we got out our flashlights, and we're looking around, and the mortar landed right next to me on the right side of the Jeep. It didn't explode. So instead of instead of realizing that I 
should submit myself to God, I develop an attitude of I am uh, indestructible. <laughs> and uh, so go a few years further. I, I got married in September of 1971. My wife and I moved into our first apartment. It was a rickety old building, and we were on the second floor. And uh, on April, I mean, February 9th, 1971, uh, an earthquake named the San Fernando earthquake, which was very, very devastating, and it killed a lot of people, it struck. My wife had gone into the bathroom to get ready to go to work. It was still dark. It was a Tuesday morning. And when the earthquake struck, she screamed bloody murder. And I'd been through some earthquakes before, and I was just laying there in bed kind of riding it. <laughs> but when my wife screamed, it sent a chill inside of me that I had never experienced. I jumped out of bed. I, I started to run down the hall, and I got knocked to my knees. I crawled the west, rest of the way into the bathroom. And like I said, it was dark. And I, what I didn't know was my wife had just gotten out of a hot, topi, soapy bathtub. And when I reached out to her, I felt warm, sticky. And in my mind, it was blood. And I mean, it was as if my heart stopped. Well, once we got it all sorted out, I, I was a different person. I was afraid. And I, went, I started going to the people at my Presbyterian church, the leaders at my Presbyterian church. And this is all because of an earthquake. I mean, I'm, I'm connecting with Naomi here. And uh, um, they didn't have any answers from me. Oh, you're okay. You know, don't worry about it. You know, you, when you raised your hand and said you, you believe in Jesus Christ, you know, that was the second coming and and uh, uh, and you you know you're you're a Christian and but there was something there was something missing and uh, at the time my young wife and I were youth advisors to the church uh, we, we went to uh, a retreat Easter week um, to do uh, some work for uh, an Indian reservation with the youth group and the pastor was a, a missionary pastor to the Navajo Indians. And on Thursday night, we had a worship service. It was April 9th, 1971. And uh, he got up in the pulpit and he said, uh, I am going to be the thief on the cross next to Jesus. I am going to assume his personality and his voice. And I want you to use your imagination so that you can see that thief on the cross who turned to Jesus and scolded the other thief. And so anyway, he, he turned around, Reverend George Haspold. And then he turned back and he started to speak. And he was that thief on the cross. And I, I my eyes were like, what's going on? This is what I've been listening, wanting to find. This is what I've been asking questions about. Long story short, later that evening, myself and the youth wound up in an afterglow session, and some stuff happened, and one of the kids said, how, how do I know if I'm saved? And so the pastor's wife got up and read, read Romans, I think it's 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you shall be saved. And so the kids formed two lines, one with the pastor and one with the, the wife, and they were one by one asking, can, can it be me? And then one by one they were, they were like repenting of their sin, <coughs> accepting Christ as their Savior, and I'm standing there, what's going on? What's going on? I don't understand any of this. And then the lines were so long, they, they formed the line in front of me. 
And they were they asked me the same question. So I did the only thing that I could do. I quoted the same passage, and, I, and right in front of me, I saw teenager after teenager except Christ as their Savior. And I was baffled. Afterwards, later, most of those kids, there were 20, 23 teenagers on that trip. 21 of them got saved. A good half of those are, are some of my best friends that I still have contact with today. But I was standing outside of the pastor's office, and they were in the office. And uh, I, I was engaged in a battle. And part of my mind was saying, go inside. Go inside and receive Christ as your Savior. And the other half of me was saying, hey, you're okay. You know, you don't need anything. This is just, this is just a ruse. Anyway, after a couple hours, I went in. And I, as soon as I walked into that room, I didn't have to hear any words from anyone the, the presence of the Spirit was so powerful that I just went to my knees and the, the wickedness of my inner man just poured forth from me like I had been hiding for so many years. It was all very true revelation that, that was exposed and I was glad to give it to, to my Lord and Savior and, and I, I repented and, and I was saved that night. And it was all because of an, an earthquake. And I'm, I'm always glad to share that testimony. Um, yeah, it was a memorable event. Stuff, stuff like that doesn't happen uh, all the time. Uh, but I praise the Lord every day that it, it, that's something that did happen uh, in, in my life. I actually left the Presbyterian Church and wound up at John MacArthur's church not too long after that. And we met a gentleman by the name of Mac Mackey who was like a grandpa, and, and Mac was the one that was able uh, to lead my wife to that same salvation in Christ, and, and it changed our lives forever. So anyway, thank you for your attention. Uh, know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. Reverend Haskell did that that night when he preached his sermon. It wasn't written down as a book of the Bible, but it echoed. It echoed the words of the Bible. It was the gospel. And that's what we're called to preach, and that's what's preached here. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for your, um, your wonderful word and the teachings that it brings to us. And I do pray, Father, that um, uh, everyone reflects within their own inner self and, and uh, celebrates their salvation or if need be desires um, information that would help them to understand it even further. I pray these things in your name. Amen.